Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, Good to see many of you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City. We continue this morning in a series that we have been doing now for quite a while, but as we come uh, closer to Easter, in these weeks leading up to Easter during the season of Lent, we've been looking at the passion of Christ, that word passion referring to his death, and so in the last few days and and now we get to the last few hours of his life and and some very familiar stories and very familiar scenes from his life. Uh, kind of taking them chronologically and going one by one. And, and today, this morning, we come to this, to this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, which many of us are familiar with. Uh, Jesus is just hours away from his crucifixion here. And uh, so very, I, I'm, 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 um, I'm intimidated. Uh, we've, we've only preached, it's funny, we preached this text once before. Uh, and it is, uh, we preached it five years actually to the day, March 6th, 2011. And so if you, you know, if you miss something today, just go back, because I'm pretty much going to do the same thing I did five years ago. I'm trusting that you don't remember that sermon at all, and I don't really remember it much either. Uh, but it is really, it's really an intimidating text, because um, what's, what, what's happening here is so holy and so, um, so powerful that it's kind of intimidating to stand uh, before it. Now, we've been saying Jesus is going to his cross. He wants us to go with him. That's, that's the basic doctrine we're trying to unfold. Jesus is going to his cross. That's where he's headed. He wants us to take up our cross and go with him. And so here's the question before us this morning. When you're under pressure, when you're under pressure, what happens to you? Because one of the things uh, that, that, you know, we learn from not only the Bible, just from common sense in general, when you're under pressure, what's really inside of you comes out. Pressure brings out whatever is really there underneath the surface of your life. Gethsemane, this garden that Jesus enters here, it literally means in the Greek olive press, okay? Olive press. That's the metaphor here. And so when everything's going along just fine, then you can stuff down the the inner parts of your life. But when you're under pressure, when you enter the olive press, when you start to get squeezed, your true emotions, your true dispositions, they get squeezed out. So my question is, what gets squeezed out of you when you're under stress? Is it selfishness? Is it anger? Listen, I get the sniffles, and I start to melt down. I mean, one, one minor deadline, and I become a black hole of self-concern. Anybody else? Because that is what's most true of me. And it gets, it gets pushed out, it gets squeezed out. 
Now, here's the thing. This, what we see Jesus having to endure here, this is pressure unlike anything any of us has ever experienced. Our, our very worst days are a bad hair day compared to this moment. Jesus experiences such enormous anxiety and dread that the capillaries underneath his skin burst and he begins to sweat blood. But think about this. What gets squeezed out of him? Not selfishness. Not anger. He doesn't become a black hole of self-concern. What gets squeezed out of him? The answer is love. Love. Love for his father and a commitment to remain obedient to him. Love for us because that's what's most true of him. And that's why he's the Savior. What, what he's really like is coming out. What he's really like, you see here in this text, in this scene, more than probably any other scene in the entire Gospels, what is really true of him. And that's why we've got to deal with this this morning and look at it, because there's a lot of stuff that's uh, really good for us this morning. Robert Murray McShane said uh, this. He said, Jesus is not just a dying Savior, he's a doing Savior. And I like that. And so those are our two points this morning. If you look there in the outline that I've given to you, what I want you to see from this text, I want you to see first Jesus' agony. Uh, but then pushing through his agony uh, to his obedience, I want you to see he is a dying Savior, but he's also a doing Savior. And then I just want to make some applications, okay? So let's begin with that first point. He is a dying Savior. Let's look at his agony. Particularly, let's look at the intensity of his agony. Okay, and this is the word that Luke himself uses. So look there in verses 43 and 44. There appeared to him an angel, we're told, from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. So there are a couple of clues in those verses that show just how staggering, how overwhelming Jesus' struggle is here. The word itself, he is in agony there. It refers to a wrestling match. That's the word. And so there's an inner emotional anguish that Jesus is enduring here. There's a wrestling match going on in his insides. He's in the throes of a terrible anxiety attack, and it's so intense. It's unlike anything. If you, you deal with anxiety, uh, then you have a little glimpse of this, but I'm telling it's unlike anything anybody in the room's ever experienced. It's so intense, he begins to sweat blood. As he walks into the garden, something comes over him, a crushing, overwhelming, devastating sense of apprehension that threatens to destroy him. And it's so dehabilitating that Luke says God sends an angel, verse 43, to strengthen him. That's just in how much trouble he really is in. Now, what is this? Why is, what is this? Why is he in such agony? You might say, that's easy. You know, think about what he's about to endure, betrayal and arrest and flogging. If we did a list, crucifixion, death, that's enough to put anyone in a condition like this. And see, that's the thing. That's the thing that we have to reckon with. Because if you, if you look at the history of Christianity, one of the things that stands out uh, is that Christians, uh, one of the things we could say is true of Christians is Christians are typically people who die well. I mean, we have a history of, of dying well. The best of us have died gloriously with composure and courage in ways that cause the people, the, the, you know, the cultures around them to say, what, what are these people? How is it that they can find the emotional strength and courage to, to die this way? And probably my favorite story, because it's a part of my family history, is uh, the Oxford martyrs Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. My grandparents are Claude and Anne Ridley, uh, descended from Nicholas Ridley, and so my son, is named, is, his middle name is Ridley, because of this part of our family legacy, but these two men were killed by Bloody Mary for their Protestant convictions, and as they were tied to the pyre and the flames began to rise, the story goes that Latimer 
called out to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. And they died courageously. Thomas Cramer, who was to be burned with them, uh, was coursed instead to recant. Later, he found himself on the pyre as well, and as the wood was lit at his feet, the story goes that he thrust his hand into the fire, uh, insisting that the hand uh, that was guilty of such betrayal and sin should burn first, and then put his hand lit on fire to his face and lit himself on fire. I mean, these men, these men died with courage and poise, and many others over the centuries have died in similar fashion, singing hymns, comforting loved ones, faces radiant, running towards heaven. No hesitation, no bloody sweat, no crying out, let this cup pass from me. See, I mean, this is, this is what we have to reckon with in the text, because how is it that hundreds and thousands of Jesus' followers could have died with more courage and composure than he seems to? Why is he so discomposed? He's falling apart here. His body is leaking blood through the pores in his skin. What's going on? And the commentators are all in agreement. And they say something like this, that Jesus' death was, different, was a different kind of death than anybody else, any death anybody else had ever faced before or since. That the reason, there's a reason Jesus is, discom- is so discomposed here. Because what he's facing is different than those people who died so gloriously were facing. Jesus is discomposed because of what he talks about, because of the cup. You see that? He keeps talking about the cup. Now look at his prayer, verse 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. So what is this? Well, in the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets use the image of the cup to refer to God's judicial wrath on injustice and evil. So the prophets would foretell of God's judgment against the nations of the earth. They would say things like Ezekiel 23, you will drink of the cup of horror and desolation, or Isaiah 51, you will drink from the cup of his wrath. So when Jesus refers to the cup, it means that he is not only facing physical torture and death, but even something more, that in his death, he will experience the full divine wrath against human sin and rebellion. The judicial wrath of God will come down upon him rather than upon us. Now, Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon on this passage, which is quite remarkable, as Edwards is wont to be, says that in some sense, this, this facing of the divine wrath begins right here, that Jesus is known all along that he would have to die, but in some sense he gets a taste of the cup. He gets an experience right here in this moment of the wrath of God, and it's enough to cause him to begin to literally melt and fall apart. But what is that wrath? What, what, what is the wrath of God we're talking about? What is the essence of the cup? And Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he says that he just has this one little line. He says that it is the torture of the divine absence. The torture of the divine absence. So the essence of sin is, I, I don't want God in my life. God, I'm, I'm doing fine without you. I don't really need any help. If you just leave me alone, that would be great. The essence of sin is, I don't want God in my life. The essence of God's judicial wrath is to give us what we want. The removal of his gracious and sustaining presence from our lives. So Keller says, Jesus is walking toward the place of prayer, and as he kneels and begins to pray, he does what he's always done. He begins to reach out toward his Father. Because you see, from all eternity, he had been intimately connected with the Father. And throughout his earthly ministry, he's lived in complete dependence upon the Father. He's constantly, if you read the Gospels, sneaking away 
to pray and connect with the Father and find the strength and the mission that I mean the wisdom that he needs for his mission. He he lived in perpetual living communion with the Father. Moment by moment, day after day, there was this there was this direct line of, of communion and connection between the two of them. But in this moment, he reaches out as he's done a thousand times before. He turns towards his father, and there's nothing. These are the very last hours of his life. He's under enormous pressure. In hours, he will face torture and death. In moments, they will come to arrest him. And he reaches out for the comfort of his father's embrace. But instead of comfort and love, hell opens up before him. He turns toward the father. And there was nothing but silence and darkness and forsakenness. And he tasted it. And it almost killed him. That's what's happening here. Now, what's this mean for us? Well, in one way, the Scripture is saying, Acts 17, 28, that in, in Him, in God, we live and, and move and have our being. So if God, if God would remove His gracious, sustaining power from our lives for just one self second, just one second, we would begin to instantaneously melt, physically, emotionally, and spiritually in every way. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you may not want him in your life, but there's an irony. You may not want him, but you need him. You may not want him in your life, but you need him. He's the sunshine and the rain, and we are the flower. Without him, we wither away. We, we need his love. We need his presence. We cannot live without him. Sometimes it feels like we can't live with him, but we surely can't live without him. We keep trying to find happiness apart from him, but there is no such thing. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? That you may feel like you can't live with him, but you certainly can't live without him. If he were to remove himself from you from, for one millisecond, you would crinkle up like a plastic bottle on a raging fire. If just the anticipation of drinking the cup, just a small taste of it, sent the Son of God into shock, can you imagine the horror of having to drink it to the dregs? One sip. And Jesus begins to disintegrate. Can you imagine what it would be like for you, for I, to have to face the full measure of his judicial wrath? Yet it is what the Bible says is the fate of all those who spurn him. And so there's a warning here. And Jonathan Edwards says that thought should shake us. And the catechisms teach that the punishment that every sins deserve is the wrath and curse of God. And that's not something you just shrug your shoulders at and then go on with your day. It should shake you. Look at what Jesus, look at what it does to him. But see, here's the good news. Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, if you've turned to him, if you know that he is the solution to your sins and not you, the part of the gospel is the doctrine of propitiation. It's a big word, Right? And what you have here and also on the cross is the judicial wrath of God for your sins coming down upon Jesus instead of coming down upon you. That the cup we drink is not the cup of God's wrath, but the cup of the new covenant in his blood because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs on the cross. In his death, Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God for you. And listen, hear me, God cannot execute justice against Jesus for your sins and then turn around and execute justice against you. That would be unjust. And so Paul is right when he says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the agony 
that our dying Savior endured in our place. He is a dying Savior. But secondly, come to the second point with me. He's also a doing Savior. So let's look at his obedience. And here's the question. Now we want to ask, what about the timing of his agony? Why now? Why here before the crucifixion? See, we know that the fullness of the sense of alienation and absence of the Father would happen on the cross. Remember, he cries out, Father, uh, you know, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he's, when he's there? But, but why does he get a foretaste of it right now? Why here? Why now? And to answer that question, we have to look at this scene with a wide-angle lens, okay? We have to kind of back out wide-angle lens and think about two of the broader themes in the Bible. So let's do that for just a minute together. And the first theme is uh, the theme of temptation in Jesus' ministry. So he says in verse 40, look there, to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then again in verse 46, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus' three years of ministry were bracketed by two tests of his obedience, two temptations. And at the beginning of his public ministry, just after his baptism, we're told he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan, the personification of evil, came to him to tempt him to take a throne instead of a cross. He withstood the temptation. He remained faithful to his Father. And at the end of that scene in Luke 4, Luke 4.13, it says this, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is why I think Mel Gibson, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, he got it right. He got it absolutely right in the opening scene in that movie of having Satan in the garden. If you remember whispering to Jesus in his ear as he's crying out to the Father, he's saying things like, do you really think this is going to work? I mean, who are you to think that you can do this for all, you know, that your blood is enough for all of mankind? Who is this father you keep talking about? And Satan's just poking at him and poking at him and poking at him because this, this is the opportune time. Jesus is being tempted. He's being tempted here. And listen to his anguish, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. In other words, I don't want to do this, he says. Think about that. He struggled. I mean, Matthew reports, Matthew reports that three times, that, that there's three different, in Luke there's only one time of prayer. In Matthew, there's three times of prayer. So three times he, he goes to pray and comes back to his disciples and then goes to pray. And it's only the third, it's only in the third bout of prayer that Jesus is able to wrestle his heart into submission to the Father's plan. He's being tempted. And yet my favorite part of that scene in the Passion of the Christ, as, as Satan is there, the snake begins to slither out from underneath Satan's cape, and it begins to crawl all over Jesus, and, and then he, he, you know, he ushers you know, he, the words, Father, take this cup, but not my will, but yours be done. And he stands, and he stomps his foot on the head of the snake. And that's the second theme. The second broad theme is the connection between Jesus and and Adam, that's so obvious here, the first man in Genesis. See, he's being tempted, but ultimately he overcomes the temptation. And the Bible connects Adam's disobedience and Jesus' obedience. In Romans 5, for example, most of the commentators see a connection here as well. Uh, you think about this. I mean, I don't think this is making too much of this. Adam sins against God in a garden. Everything goes wrong in a garden. Here you have another Adam, the second Adam, in another garden. But this time, this Adam does what the first Adam failed to do. Everything's made right in this garden. The first Adam prayed to God, and, and his prayer basically was, not your will but mine be done. The second Adam prays rightly, not my will but yours be done. I'm God, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. 
I'm going to choose your way and not my own way. I'm going to fulfill the mission you've given to me even though I don't want to. And that's what those words mean. And so the theologians refer to this as Jesus' active righteousness, that he not only died the death we should have died, he also lived the life that we should have lived. He loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. He was obedient, Philippians 2 says, even to the point of death, death upon a cross. And so Tim Keller has put it this way rather brilliantly. He says, God came to Adam in the, in the Garden of Eden, and he said, obey me about the tree and you will live. Don't eat the fruit from the tree and you will live. I will bless you. But Adam disobeyed. And here, it's the exact opposite. Here, there's another garden and God says to Jesus, the second Adam, obey me. Obey me about the tree and you will die. Obey me and I will curse you. I will forsake you. I will cast you off and send you to hell. And he obeyed. So Keller says, sin began when the first Adam disobeyed God about a tree. Now salvation is coming because the second Adam obeys God about a tree. The first Adam was told, obey me about the tree and you will live. The second Adam was told, obey me about the tree and I will nail you to it and I will destroy you on it. And yet he obeyed. He's not just a dying Savior. He's a doing Savior on the cross. He died so that you might be forgiven of your sins. But here he obeys the Father to his own hurt so that when you put your faith in him, you don't just get a do-over. You get the righteousness that you need. There's an obedience that we owe to God. And this is it. What you see here, this is it. What Jesus is doing here. And so Jesus not only died so that we could be forgiven, he obeyed for us so that in him we could be seen by the Father as obeying too. Now this explains the timing of the anguish, why he experienced this crushing absence of the Father here before the cross. Because it's one thing, you see, to have an idea about something and quite another to experience it. So if, you've, if you haven't been to the dentist in 10 years, say, and not a good idea, by the way, right? That's, that's a pretty scary experience when it's time to make that appointment after all those years. You might have an idea of the kind of pain the cleaning would bring, but as soon as the drilling begins... You might say, not, not my dentist, of course. I mean, he's marvelous. But you might say, you might say, if I had known it was going to be like this, I would have canceled the appointment. So what if, what if the day before the appointment, you could have, for just a minute or two, been given an experience of what the actual pain would have been like when you got there? Do you think you would have gone? Probably not. Jesus has known all along what was to come. He's been telling his disciples about his death over and over again, as we've seen. But now, but now he begins to experience it. His knowing goes beyond just knowing. He gets a glimpse of what the cross would bring, and it is so horrifying that he sweats blood. And he still goes. <laughs> the test of Jesus' obedience was to get a real sense of the agony of the cross to see if he would still say yes. And knowing the fullness of the agony he would endure, he said yes. And that makes his actions here the greatest act of love and obedience to the Father and to his people in the history of the world. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. He says, he had now a clear view, a near view of the furnace into which he was about to be cast. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath 
And it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us knowing what it was. God set the cup in front of Jesus and let him smell it and taste it when it was still possible for him to pull away and protect himself, but he didn't didn't. Do you know, you know what that means? Do you know what it means? Hebrews 12 says that there was a joy set before Jesus that was greater than the agony. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. That word despise means to make little of something. So there was a joy so great that it made the agony of the cross a little thing to him. And knowing the full measure of what he was about to face, he didn't shrink back and try to protect himself. He went. And Edwards imagines Jesus, he imagines that Jesus could have looked at his disciples who he's asked to stay awake in this time of his greatest need. He wants his friends with him to support him and, he, and they can't even stay awake with him in these moments in the garden. And Edward says, you know, he imagines Jesus looking at his disciples uh, and saying with complete justice and warrant, listen to his words, he says, you know, why should I, who am so great and glorious a person, infinitely more honorable than all the angels in heaven, why should I go plunge myself into such dreadful, amazing torments for worthless, wretched worms that cannot be profitable to God or to me, and that deserve to be hated by me and not to be loved. Why should I, who, who have been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go cast myself into such a furnace for them that can never repay me for it? Why should I yield myself thus to be crushed by the weight of divine wrath for them who have no love for me? They do not deserve any union with me and never did and never will do anything to recommend themselves to me. Edward says he could have said that, but he didn't. And that's the point. He didn't, and why not? And here again are Edward's words because I can't improve upon them. And this is what I printed for you in your, in your worship folder, so look there with me. Here's what he says. Instead of, instead of those words, here, here's the reality. He says, the anguish of Christ's soul at that time was so strong as to cause that wonderful effect on his body, but his love to his enemies, poor and unworthy, was stronger still. The heart of Christ at that time was so full of distress, but it was fuller of love. His sorrows abounded, but his love did much more abound. Christ's soul, this is, this is so, so, so beautiful how he puts this. He says, Christ's soul was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love to sinners in his heart, sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountains of its sins. <laughs> Those great drops of blood were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. He prays, not my will, but yours be done. That's not a robotic statement. Jesus didn't shut off his emotions. He wants to abort the mission. That's what that means. He wants to abort the mission. Father, take this cup from me. But he goes against what he wants because there's something he wants even more. It's not that there's no will in him. See, I want you to see that. He says, not my will. There's a way that he wants it to go here. But he submits his will to his Father. It's not that there's no will in him. There's no selfishness in him. He doesn't do his own will. He's not motivated by selfishness at all. And that's what astounds me. If he had not been motivated by selfishness and self-interest, then he must have been motivated by something else. He must be being motivated by love. It's love. Edward says love 
sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountains of its sins. Oh, how he loves us. Right? We sing that song. He loves us. You know, the reason I love that song by David Crowder is it's, it's like it's dawning on him in the middle of that song. He loves us. Oh, oh, how he loves us. Do you see him here? He loves you. That's the only reason. It's the only reason he would do this. And so let me just apply this for a second. He's a dying Savior and he's a doing Savior. Let me just make some applications and we're coming to a close here. I want you to see that Jesus here is a model for our obedience too. There's a difference between temptation and sin. We've got to keep that in mind. Jesus is tempted here, but he does not sin. There's a difference between living with sinful desires and cravings and submitting those desires and cravings to God. And Jesus is showing us the way. Obedience means acting against your feelings and desires. It means saying no to yourself. And this is heresy in our culture. And the culture says the way to happiness is to be true to yourself. Christianity says the way to, to find joy and peace in life is to deny yourself and to take up your cross. The culture says be true to yourself. Christianity says say no to yourself. So he really is a great model for our obedience here. He's also a model for prayer. Look, Look at how he prays. I mean, this is a beautiful, this is really a beautiful, this is the crux of all really great praying, I think. He's completely, on one hand, completely honest emotionally. And at the same time, he's absolutely submitted to the will of his Father. Those two are not contradictory. We often pray as if they are, but they're not. They run together. Jesus doesn't put on a pious front. Three times he says, I don't want to do this. The Son of God said to the Father, I'm not really into this. Right? Can we find another way? I know. We've, I mean, now we've been talking about this since eternity past. But at this last moment, I was just wondering, you know, is there some other way around this thing? He's completely emotionally honest and yet resolutely submitted to the Father. And the scene shows us that the basic purpose of prayer, hear me, the basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, but to mold my will to his. You don't start with not my will. That's bad praying. I think Bob Allens would tell you that. You don't start with not my will. You hopefully end there, but you don't start there. You start, you start with where you are. You start with being honest about how you feel. You start with just expressing to the Father whatever it is you want, and you trust him to shape your asking from there. That's what Jesus did. He teaches us how to pray. So he's a model for obedience, and he's a model for prayer, but he can't just be a model for obedience. He's also, his love is the power for that obedience. He's not just a model, he's a savior. He doesn't just show us how to live. He gives us the power to live that way. If Jesus is only a model for for you, you'll be crushed. Because I'm telling you, the sniffles, the sniffles come my way and I get thrown off this. Right? My very worst days, I'm nowhere, I mean, I couldn't possibly do what he does here. And so I need for him to be more than my model. I need for him to be my savior. I needed him for him to do it perfectly for me because I never will. And he doesn't just show us how to live here. He shows us the power to live that way. Listen to Tim Keller again. He says, the paradox is that not only if we see him as a, uh, the paradox is that not only must we see him as, a, as, as, a, as a, an example, but only when we see him as a substitute rather than just a mod- model can we actually have the ability to live according to the model. How? Here are his words. He says, look at him here in the garden doing all of this, not just as an example, but as a substitute in your place knowing that makes his suffering personal to you. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, how do you find the strength to act against your feelings and give everything to God? You have to see God in the flesh acting against his feelings 
to do good to you. That's for you. He's doing that for you. And it's when you realize that it's for you, that it's for your sake, that it's because he loved you, because you were the joy set before him that made the agony of the cross a little thing to him. When that comes home to your heart, then you'll find the strength to act against your feelings and live for him. That's what Keller says. And that's the point. Jesus is going to a cross. He wants us to go with him. You know what that means? It means that there will be a Gethsemane for you and I too. There's an olive press that you will have to face too. It's a place of testing and obedience and suffering. And it might be persecution. It might be cancer. It might be a child's waywardness. I don't know. I don't know what it might I don't know what it will be. I can't promise you that you will be able to avoid Gethsemane, but I can promise you this. Here's the good news of this text. Your Gethsemane will be different than his was. You, like the saints of old, can face it like Stephen in Acts 6 as he's being stoned with a face, and here I quote, like the face of an angel with courage and hope and anticipation and even joy running toward heaven because while faith in Christ means a Gethsemane like his, it is also unlike his in this way. Here's the way. Here it is. When you go into your Gethsemane, you might face the Gethsemane, but there will be no cup. You might have to face your own Gethsemane, but you will not have to face the cup. The cup of God's wrath has been drained in the death of Christ. The cup that he raises over his disciples at the Last Supper, the cup he raises over us is not the cup of wrath. It's the cup of the new covenant of his blood, the cup of blessing, the cup of love and joy and intimacy with God our Father, the promise of the new age of the spirit of power for obedience. Jesus' Gethsemane has transformed all other Gethsemanes into opportunities to actually be driven deeper into his love for us. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There may be a Gethsemane. I can't promise you you won't face that, but I can promise you whatever Gethsemane you go into, there will not be a cup. Isn't that good news? So let's come to his table now together. Can we pray? So Father, as we gather around this meal that you have uh, provided for us, we do pray that in this cup we would see that the cup of your wrath against our sin has been drained because of the work of Christ on our behalf. And now, as Jonathan comes to raise this cup over us, it is the cup of blessing and love that is raised over us. Oh, that's, that, is, uh, that is too wonderful for us to imagine. And I know many of my friends here have, have come from Gethsemane-like places this morning to this place. And I do pray that, that you would so drive home to their, to their hearts and to my heart the truth of your great love for us. And, in, in the view we get of this one who has loved us so, so deeply, this dying Savior who is also the doing Savior, that we've been made right with you, that our sins have been forgiven, that we can be righteous because of the obedience of Christ on our behalf, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All these gospel truths that are ours, I pray you would drive them home to our hearts so they might transform the Gethsemanes that we are having to endure into places where we actually are driven deeper into your love so that we might be like saints throughout all the generations who have faced the hardest things in our lives, when, when we get squeezed, when we, even when we get squeezed, it wouldn't be self-pity or anger or, or anxiety that comes out of us, but that when we get squeezed, even when we get squeezed, love and joy and peace and patience and goodwill towards others and a commitment to serve you and to love 
our neighbors as ourselves is what would come out of us because it would be the thing that is most true of us. Would you change us to be like that so that we might bear fruit and glorify you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you know that that's true, that he is the one that you've been made for, that, that we keep looking for happiness apart from him, but uh, there is no such thing. And so turn your heart towards him. He is the one, the bleeding one in the garden, wrestling uh, his soul into obedience to the Father so that he might love you and give you all that you need, that you might live before the Father uh, with, with complete confidence and assurance of his great love for you. That is, that is the power source for the obedience that he requires of you, even if you go from this place and enter a Gethsemane of your own. Remember, though you enter the garden of tempting, you do not go there to face a cup. But the Father's love and, and joy in you go with you. That's the promise of this benediction. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.